Today I'm going to start a, a, a message that I will not finish. I actually started working on this this week, and I knew I was going to go into a part two. And then when I spoke it at the 930 service for the first time, I didn't make it through this message. So um, I'll just go today until I run out of time, and um, I'll continue next week. But this message is one of those discipleship messages. I believe that um, it can change us if we let it. And so there are some messages that pump you up. There are some that you know, really motivate you. There are some that, that grow you and some that challenge you. And, and I think this is probably one of those. So I want to begin it by asking some simple questions. And I want you to just kind of, of let, let these questions um, be in, in your mind for the next 25 minutes and let it just just sit there and soak and think through it, okay? So, have you ever thought about why you worship the way you worship? Have you ever thought about why you worship the way you worship? Is how you worship connected to what you have been taught, or is it connected to your heart? Is it connected to your heart? Is how you worship connected to how your parents worshiped or to how your spouse worships? I think the answer to all of these, or I believe the answer to all of these, could be yes, because the truth is we have all been heavily influenced in our thought and our spirituality and our intellect as it relates to worship. And so this morning what I'm going to try to do is unpack this and teach it in an unbiased way so that by the end of the next couple of weeks that we kind of have a better understanding of what God desires for us and from us as it relates to the worship. Of our God. So I want to start at the beginning and I want you to go to the book of Genesis and we're just going to kind of traverse uh, through um, several passages from that point. But if you've got your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 4 and we're going to look here. We find here in Genesis chapter 4, a lot has already happened. As you know, chronologically, Genesis skips years at a time. And so by the time we're to chapter 4, we're already on the third generation of people. And so we find here in Genesis 4, we find Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel have both decided that they are going to present something to God. And there's a lot of, there's le- there's a lot of mystery here. There's a lot of things left un- undone and, and that aren't talked about. But... What we see here is that each one of them brings something and it's related to their expertise, okay? Their individual expertise. And so in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, it says, In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to God. Now, this is why you've been taught that Cain was a farmer, okay? This is, this is as close as it gets. We don't know if he did this all of the time. We don't know if he had a little side project. We don't know if it's enough to go. That's what Cain's occupation was. I think at this time in history, they did everything. 
But Cain decided, I have grown this. It is pleasing to me. I'm going to present it to God. And then you go on and it says, And Abel also brought an offering from some of the firstborn of his flock. Okay? And so the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast, meaning he felt shamed. Okay? So let's break this down just, uh, you know, let's, let's have a little mini sermon before we get to the, to the real sermon. We know now in hindsight and looking through the entire canon of Scripture that there was a reason for this favor on Abel and the lack of favor on Cain. The reason is because the sacrifice, or as we graduate that into the New Testament, we call it worship, that there had to be a connection to life. It had to cost you something. You had to feel it. The offering, the sacrifice, had to have life with it. And as we look at that more and more and more, as it aims us toward the cross in the Gospels, we know that this is why God said, now that is favor because it's got life in it. It's got blood in it. This is the theme. This is the goal. And I'm going to bless this because this is how I want to see things move toward the cross. But what came brought did not, it did not have blood. It did not have life. It did not have spirit. And so God did not honor it. So this is also the first time in text that it demonstrates to us that worship is personal. And because it is personal, it was also emotional. All right? Let me explain that. So the worship, the sacrifice should cause us to feel something. There should just be an emotional connection with how we worship God. It was the same with the sacrificing of a lamb. It, it cost you. It, it was part of your life's story. Um, again, it had life to it. It had blood to it. And so it was necessary to feel it. Even when you look at Cain's response, he got emotional because God did not put favor on it. So now he's both angry and ashamed because he thinks that what he brought should be honored by God. And I'll get more into that in just a, a moment. But for those of you who might be here today and you struggle with being emotional, I would tell you that there has to be a connection between what you are giving and who you are giving it to, all right? So even if we set that aside and we come over to a very common experience in our culture, let's talk about birthdays or Christmas or anniversaries or just because gifts. So you go out and you purchase something. It has cost you, and you put some emotion behind it. You're excited about it. Or maybe it's something that has immediate sentiment. You're honoring someone. You're remembering someone by a gift. You take that and then you extend it to another person. They receive it. And they're like, wow. And they pick up on the emotional aspect of what you've done. 
It is a communication of affection and of love, and it takes place in both the giving and the receiving. It is both personal and it is emotional, and this is what our worship is like. Now, there is a terrible doctrine that has been taught as it relates to our worship, and it's just labeled emotionalism. And people have become scared of it, and they've said, well, if it means that I'm going to feel something, or I'm going to be emotional, or it's going to cause me to cry, or it's going to cause me to respond to God, then I've got to be careful of that because, because that, that's, that's emotionalism. And that is a terrible doctrine because all throughout Scripture we clearly see that the gifts given to God and the worship of God is highly tethered to the emotional construct of man. I'm going to get into that too in just a moment. So we have to realize that this connection we have with our God is often communicated through our emotions and through our gratitude. And that connection of our emotion is the gift that is greater than what you're actually presenting to him. Okay? Now, throughout the Old Testament, there are hundreds of examples of worship. And among those hundreds of examples, there are miscellaneous, a plethora of different ways of worshiping. There are actually a hundred, approximately a hundred and eighty-two different uh, scenarios where worship took place just in the Old Testament. I'm going to talk to you about just a few of those, just to put us on the same page. There were things like giving thanks, okay? I know it sounds easy, but just, just stay with me. There were moments when God's people would just pause and not ask for anything. They would just give thanks. It would be very simple. I thank you for my life. I thank you for my children. I thank you for where I live. I thank you for what I'm driving. I thank you for my job. I thank you for friendship. I thank you for health. I thank you that I got up this morning and I knew my name. I'm just, I'm thankful. And it was just a, a series of gratitude. And this was a style of worship or a practice of worship within the Old Testament. There was also crying out. Like people were so moved by need that they shed tears. Like, God, I need you. I need you to get involved. I need you to help me make a change. I need you to rescue me or rescue my kids or rescue my spouse. It was out of need and, and want for God's involvement. And it came with the crying out and with the shedding of tears. Then there were things that were very common like singing and dancing and the playing of instruments. Sometimes they would tear their clothes just to show God the, an example of the angst that they had against the situation. They would sacrifice animals. They would burn incense. They would kneel down to show lowliness and humility. They would stand. They would clap. They would lift their hands. 
They would shout out loud. And I'm not talking about just to yell for no reason, but a reference of that would be to the walls of Jericho. Like I am going to shout out a voice of triumph. Like I have won. God has won. God has done something in my life that I can't contain in my chest. So I'm going to shout it out about the goodness of God. This was the emotional connection that he had with his people. And then there was always this being still, this, this sacredness, this, the, the bowing of oneself, the quietness, the reverence, the holiness of just being. It comes from that like, be still and just know that I'm God. And in that stillness, you are worshiping and quiet. Psalm 63 says, I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. If we look in the New Testament, Paul is writing to, to, to Timothy, and keep in mind that these letters to Timothy, Paul is, is on his last leg. He's trying to hand off the torch well. Timothy is um, his student. He is the mentor. Paul is his mentor and so he is trying to empty himself as much as he can. i got to get all of this out. And those are two just beautiful letters. And in chapter 2 and verse 8 of 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, I desire that in every place the men would pray and they would lift up holy hands without anger. Okay, this word anger doesn't necessarily mean oh, like, like raka. But it means like, I'm going to lift up my hands. Anger is not going to be present. Therefore, it's an act of holiness. So it's not like a war cry. It's not like I've got a sword in my hand. It's just an open hand lifted to God without anger as an act of just sacredness, holiness, worship. He says, I desire that in every place they would lift up their hands. Now, I want us to look at the modern church for a second. And as we do, I want to be very gentle here. And let me preface this by saying, people call NLC a non-denominational church. But the truth is we're an interdenominational church. In terms of, of, of the body, of who attends it. Here's, here's why I say that. Because all of us, 95% of us, come from a denomination. We come from a particular group that taught specific things and said this is what the Bible teaches and as a whole, the majority of them believed that particular circle of teaching. What we are is an interdenomination. If I had you raise your hand, I said, how many of you were, were raised Baptist? Some of you, how many of you were raised Methodist? Some of you, how many of you were raised Church of Christ? How many of you were raised Catholic? How many of you, this and that and this and that? And by the time I listed off a hundred of them, there would be two of you sitting there going, I don't even know what any of that means. Okay? So, including myself, I was raised in a denomination. I'm only telling you that so that you have a filter about what I'm about to say. Organized religion did not choose worship based on totality of Scripture. They chose worship based on the worship preferences of a few primary leaders and teachers. Okay? In fairness, 
most of those primary leaders and teachers did not know that they were going to start a major denomination. They didn't know that they were going to plant churches around the world. They didn't know that they were going to ordain thousands and thousands of ministers. They only knew, this is how I'm viewing Scripture, and this is what's comfortable to me, and I'm going to teach it, and it blew up. If you study church history, and if you want a reference for that, Bruce Shelley is a great church historian if you want to dig into that. But Bruce Shelley teaches that, for the most part, like what, what we would call modern mainstream denominations, in their origin, like in their early, early days, they had a lot in common. Not near as much of what they have now, but they had a lot in common. Here's why. Because they started from the same move, or the same revival, or the same outpouring, or the same conference, whatever you want to call it, and then they branched off from there and began to gather people. And then they taught those people. And those people taught other people while you've got a group all the way across the country teaching something just a little bit different. Over time and centuries, those developed into strong teaching, numeric strength, attendant, all of the metrics, resources pouring in, lots of ministries, lots of churches, lots of missionaries around the world. But when they started, most of us looked almost identical. The differences were very, very, very small. But over time, those chasms became greater as those teachings became stronger. Now, if that was a little bit murky, let me simplify it with this. Most of what organized religion will teach today on worship comes from the preferential teaching of a historic main leader within that movement. Let me give you a big example. For example, if it is taught, and this is taught in many denominations, if it is taught that the raising of hands in church steals the attention off of Christ and places it onto a person, that is a worship preference. And the intention is good, but it's terrible theology. Because it doesn't even line up with what is in Scripture. Someone somewhere had a good intention and said, if you're raising your hand, you're getting the attention and God is no longer getting the attention. Here's the truth. If both the critic and the worshiper were both worshiping, it wouldn't matter. But you got somebody looking around trying to critique everybody and then say, what you're doing is making me uncomfortable. Well, if you'd come and worship God, you wouldn't be uncomfortable. So you end up with going, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm now not going to worship demonstratively or I'm not going to lift my hand because somebody tells me that it's bad. It only takes one generation to consistently teach that. And then every generation after that becomes both skeptical and critical, even though Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says, I wish all the men in every place would lift up holy hands. That's how strong it is. You start to look at it and go, well, maybe, maybe Paul was wrong. Maybe we shouldn't teach that. 
And here's what happens. Entire churches and denominations and movements begin to center around the preference of worship rather than the practice of worship. Does that make sense? So now we've we started excluding things. Let's, let's don't do that, and let's don't do that, and let's don't do that, even though it's in Scripture. Why? Because you prefer it. And, and God is saying, listen, I... Here, here's, here's my heart on this. I want you to come after me. And I want you to pursue me. And as you seek me, you'll find me. And as you knock, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come and I'm going to open. And as you ask, I'm going to answer you. And I want you to pursue that. We have pastors like myself and others for every generation have given congregations permission to be preferential rather than saying, let's practice what the Scripture's teaching us. Francis Chan, you guys know him. He's a great author and pastor. He's, he, he, he had a situation happen really quick in his church. It's, it's now both famous and funny. But this individual comes up to him right after church, right after he's stepping off, off the stage. And he, he's a little bitty guy. But he was stepping off the stage. This person runs up to him and they said, uh, Pastor Chan, I, I, want, I want you to know that I did not enjoy worship today. And without missing a beat, he said, good, because we weren't worshiping you. And he just kept on going. What he did was destroy someone's ideology that somehow that worship experience was about them finding pleasure in it. And worship is not about any of us. Worship is about what we are bringing to the Father. Not about goosebumps, not about how I feel, not about that I cried, not about that, oh, the sound was great or any of those things, but it turns into, God, I have something that I'm going to bring you and I want your favor on it. And so I am going to bless you and I am going to bring it. And this is not about me. I don't have to feel anything. I don't have to have a reward for it. It is just the act, the practice of worship. So there are many ways, many, many, many ways of worship, all of which are found in Scripture, and all of which, hear me, within their context are appropriate and can be pleasing to God. Now, I want to talk about these for a minute. This is probably where I'll have to stop. It was around here where... I had to stop at the 9.30 this morning. But I'm going to give you these Hebrew ways of worship, and I'm going to walk through them really fast, and I want you to understand that this is how God's people worshipped him. Okay? The first one is a Hebrew word called halal. Halal is where we get the word hallelujah. Hallelujah is a universal word, and it was used to say, I am celebrating God. Hallelujah. Now, it's the only time we ever use this word is in a worship setting. It has no context at any other time, even though we try to give it that context. For example, some of you are going to go to El Almasin for lunch. You're going to order fajitas, and when they come and you hear the skillet sizzling, you're going to go, hallelujah. Okay, doesn't matter. Doesn't mean you're worshiping fajitas. Okay, it just means you've missed the context. Okay, but when we say hallelujah, we are halaling God. We are celebrating the goodness 
of our God and how great he is and how magnificent he is. Many of the Psalms are doing this. They're saying, you are so great and your hand spans the universe and, and all man, you provide and you heal and you protect and you're a, a bridge over water and you're the lion, you're, you're this, you're that, you're the tower I run to. It's all celebration of God. Halal, hallelujah. The second is yada. Yada means to extend my hand. Okay, now watch. This is vertical. It's the extension. The word here is to extend upward, not, not outward. This isn't about a lateral movement like I'm reaching for food, I'm reaching for a friend, I'm reaching for medicine. This is an upward extension. Every scholar that is worth their salt that you will read about gives you the same imagery, and you know what it is. It's the imagery of reaching for a parent. They all teach it the same way. And this is what this word yada meant to the Hebrews. I'm reaching up to you. Why? Because I need you. Why? Because I want you. Why? Because I want to be close to you. Why? Because I want to lean into you. This is what the extension of hands meant. To raise them toward our God as an act of need and want and longing. It was a beautiful thing. Todah means to give thanks, and this comes from a mature believer. Todah is to give thanks for something I have not received. I'm going to give you thanks, Lord, for providing for this need. I'm going to give you thanks for a healing that I need. I'm going to give you thanks for a restoration that I need. This is Todah. Shabak. Isn't that fun to say? Let's all say it together. Shabak. Okay, when you go out, out to eat today, your challenge is to use that at least one time in a sentence. Okay, Shabbat, it means this, to praise God with a loud voice or in clapping. Most of the time, this came on the heels of something great. If you look in Acts chapter 3, it says that the man was leap, walking and leaping and praising God. Again, because we're so westernized, sometimes you have to pause and teach it this way. Imagine this guy is healed. Acts chapter 3. And so Peter said, listen, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the man got up walking, leaping, praising God. I, I, I mean, I just can't imagine him getting up and going, thank you. Um, guess I'll be on my way. No. Why? Because the fact that he was healed dropped into his spirit so fast that he didn't wait on some teaching to activate. He did what came to him naturally, which was to worship. Thank you, God. And he walked and he leaped and he praised. He told God. Okay, Barak means to kneel or bow. It was an act of lowliness, humility. I'm going to get on my face. I'm going to show you that I'm humble before you. And so they would kneel or bow. Macal is to dance or leap. Again, Acts chapter 3. Then there was Tehillah. Tehillah means to sing a new song. 
This means that you don't need a lyric, you don't need a hymn book, you don't need anything standing before you. It is coming from your heart. God, I want to thank you. I want to give you praise. I want to glorify you. I want to tell you how awesome I think you are. I want to tell you that I get it, that my life was a mess when you found me. And I'm so thankful for the way you've changed my life. This is Tehillah. A good example would be when they crossed the Red Sea, Miriam grabbed a tambourine, began to sing, began to sing a song before the, the Lord in front of a million people. She just sang and sang and sang. What was she doing? Tehillah. Then there was Zamar, which is to play an instrument. Okay? So lots of musicians in church history. Lots of anointed musicians means that their gift was not just to entertain, but it was to lead people into a heart of worship. Okay? The reason this was one context that shows you how important this was is when the Hebrews were taken captive in, into Babylon, it says they got so depressed that they hung their instruments in the trees. Like, we just give up. We're not going to play anymore. We're not going to do it anymore. And they abandoned this act of worship, and they hung it up. I believe that what's happened over time in church history is, again, we've taken these ways of worship, these ways that were acceptable, these ways to the heart of God, and we have said, I'm going to filter that through my personality, or I'm going to filter that through what I enjoy, or I'm going to filter that through the way I was raised, or I'm going to filter that through the way my parents worshipped, and now my personal worship has five filters in front of it about how what my husband thinks and what my parents think and what, what somebody else around, what my BFF is going to think and about what the church I was raised in is going to think. And suddenly your heart for God is five views behind and you have decided to worship God through preference rather than the practice of going after the heart of God. And it has robbed you of your ability to present your life to the Father. And I've, I've heard it all. I've heard people say, well, Kevin, I, don't, I can't sing, okay? And you don't want me singing. Well, there's a reason you're not on the stage with a microphone. Okay, we'll filter you. It's okay. If you can't sing, don't try out for the worship team. No big deal. There's also a little disclaimer in Scripture. It says, make a joyful noise. Maybe that's you. <laughs> well, Kevin, I, I, I can't. Uh, man, you just don't. You don't get it, man. Like, we were raised. Hear me. I'm about to throw a, a cup of cold water here, so filter this. Kevin, that's just, I, I was raised in just an environment where this didn't happen. Hear me. Maybe it's time you resign your denomination and just go after what your heart wants. What does your heart want to give the Lord? I do not want to be that guy that stands before the Lord and has to have a conversation and thought about just going, wow, I, I wasted a lot of years trying to be blank when I could have just been a believer. And just worshipped. And I get it. Stillness and quietness is worship. 
but they all have a context. And I have a hard time believing if God turns your marriage around that you're going to be still. No, you know what he deserves? A hallelujah. And we're so westernized. And we struggle with it more than any other people group in the world because we are so spoiled. I have friends who pastored here in the U.S. and now they're missionaries and they'll, they'll tell me, man, you won't believe how people go after God. Mark Pegley was telling us, he's our pastor in Russellville and he goes to Peru all the time. And they cut a path through the Peruvian jungle with machetes. Chopped out an area and started building a place for people to gather to worship. People started walking to that site a week before their plane was supposed to land just to be able to meet them there and participate in the building of a house of worship. And now, you think about our Western culture. Man, if you don't have the temperature, it better be at 68 degrees in that sanctuary or I will go to another church. I told the 930 service, this is no, no joke. Robbie and I were at this church. I was the worship pastor there. I know that's a surprise. It was just as bad as it is in your head. <laughs> the church had a, a grand piano over here. And it, it was gorgeous. But I moved it to there. We were just setting up the stage differently I don't know, 20, 25 feet maybe. People left the church over it. The pastor came to me and said, hey, you got to move that piano back. The piano? Why? Because people are leaving. Over a piano. Yeah, over a piano. Okay. I'll move it. I was at a church one time. They split I'm talking 150 people left because they could not pick out a color of carpet for the new building. They couldn't, couldn't agree on it. You know what that's being like? That is, that is the sacrifice of Cain. You think what you're doing is favorable, and it's not. You're bringing what, what you think is right, and it's wrong. I think we've just got to go after God with a practice of worship and stop going through a checklist of going, well, if they've got this and they got this and they got this and they got this, then I'm going to pick that, that church. I'm way out of time, but since there's not a service after you, I'm going to keep going. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'll, I'll, I'll end with this part. Let me finish this. This is where I finished with the 930 service. David, will you come? That makes everyone feel better. When I got into the ministry in the 90s, 
this was such a big deal, people called it the worship wars. The people in ministry did. You're like, what does that even mean? Well, it was the shift where some churches were, they, they were, they were leaving hymn books alone and they were going into modern worship music. And then they were going from acoustic instruments to electric instruments. People bought an amp. People bought a Stratocaster. People brought, uh, bought electric drums for a long time. And people were going, I don't know if that's okay. And churches were splitting over it. I remember being a part of a church and they sold their organ. And that was a huge deal. They were trading in grand pianos for keyboards. And they could not discover if this was God or not. And it burnt me up because I was like, this is not the heart of God. Because it was all based on preference. I prefer an organ. I prefer this. I prefer that. Man, I, I just believe God is calling the church to go, hey, somewhere in this, you lost me. Somewhere in this, you, you're offering the sacrifice of Cain. And I, I, I can't put a bow on this. This is right in the middle of this message. It's tied up so much better at the end, but right now, it's just a mess. You're going to have to be okay with that. But I want to pray over us. God, I love you.